Keyboard Kimura podcast is brought to you by OneBone. If you're a bigger guy like me, chances are you've had problems finding shirts and gear that fits properly. The length is there, the sleeves are too wide, and the fit is all boxy. The sleeves are good, the shirt is a little too short, meaning your belly or your butt sticks out, which nobody likes. OneBone is the answer. The gear is made of 95% cotton and 5% spandex, meaning you get a little stretch and it fits right in all the right places. There's length to cover your gut and your butt with a number of different designs, styles, and colors to give you a complete wardrobe of good-looking gear that makes you feel comfortable and stylish every day. And as a supporter of this podcast, OneBone is offering you 10% off your next purchase with the promo code ESK10. That's my initials, E-S-K, all capitals, and the number 10. Just go to their website, onebonebrand.com, check out all the gear, figure out your size with their terrific sizing guide and get yourself into some fresh new gear this summer and become a part of the growing One Bone community. One Bone, the biggest brand. Greetings and salutations, friends. It is Sunday, July 3rd. UFC 276 is in the books. And me and Harry Powell are here to talk about it. It is the UFC 276 Next Day Takeaways here on the Keyboard Kimura newsletter. I, of course, am Spencer Kite. Basking in the sunshine in lovely London town is Sir Harry Powell. Good, sir. How are you? Hello, friends. I am well, thank you. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. It is a, this is going to sound weird, probably, especially to someone sitting in London where it is often overcast and rainy, but it is overcast and rainy here and I am in love. This is the day I want today because I have a number of things I still need to get done. And so if it was a nice day, doing those things would be difficult. But as it's rainy and kind of dreary, there's not a real push to go outside on this 3rd of July. Happy birthday to your missus. Happy birthday to my brother-in-law. Happy birthday to John and Jason Anik. Let's get into this. So UFC 276, on paper, the best card of the year, by far. Stacked top to bottom. We talked about it in great detail on the on this site, on podcasts, on the preview show for Severe. And now here I am on Sunday morning, kind of feeling like a lot of people were, were left a little disappointed. And I want to get into it. Main event, Israel Adesanya, Jared Cannonier. We got a five-round, 25 minutes. Israel Adesanya gets a unanimous decision win. It is technical and tactical. And there were people exiting en masse by the start of the fifth round. And there's been a lot of blowback um, about the fight towards Izzy. There's a piece in there that I want to get to. But first, I want to get your thoughts because I know and everybody here knows you appreciate the technical side of things. You break down the technical side of things. I felt like it was a technical fight. I understand how and why it played out the way it did. But I would like to hear your thoughts on the matter, sir. I really think it just depends on what we're watching fights for. And I really, really think it depends on what your... Uh, something that I'm beginning to frame in my mind as I watch fights from different aspects is that there are different roles in this game in this sport that are fulfilled by different types of people of course we are all 
under the overarching generally we're under the overarching banner and umbrella of fans right we all and that fandom spawns from a love of the sport in some facet or some negotiation of a role with the sport when i first started and i think frankly for 99% of the people that consume or work in the MMA space, we started purely as fans of the sport. And I mean fan in the sense that we liked watching the fights. They were visceral. They made us feel something. We felt a connection with certain fighters over other fighters. And, you know, in the same way you watch a, a, a football game, soccer whatever and you're like oh this this is a sporting occasion that's interesting and intriguing to me right i think mma now there are sectors and roles of people like i've just said and i'll, I'll facilitate what i mean by that there are analysts right who can watch a fight and they can say they may not enjoy the fight from a, a purely visceral action-packed blood and guts MMA side, but you can enjoy and understand and take something from, learn something from what happened. Either this is something that's great and effective, or this is something that is not great and effective, right? You can watch it as a media member and you can say, well, these are the storylines that came out of the fight. The storyline could be that it was boring, right? That's, you know, that, that's fine. Um, you can then watch it as a, as a, a fan, a base level fan. And you can say, well, this fight's crap because it wasn't Holloway and, and, and Volkanovsky. Right. I think though, our expectation one and two are, our willingness to look for a specific representation of skill that pertains to what is a good or a bad fight is skewed. I think, and I said this uh, to, to the boys that we were watching the fights with yesterday, was the first two rounds were brilliant for Israel Asanya and Jared Cannon. Why? Because we got to saw, we got to saw, Jesus, we got to see all of the good parts, the fantastic parts, the exquisite parts of Israel Adesanya's striking Arsenal game. We got to see Jared Cannonier biting on the feints. We got to see all the effects of the Israel Adesanya striking game. In the last three rounds, we saw some adjustments from Cannonier. And we saw Israel be far less effective. So take his foot off the gas, right? And do less of the, I'm going to go in and I'm going to prove that I am by far a superior grappler to this gentleman. Fine, right? I understand why fans look at that fight and say it was rubbish. It was boring. I totally get it. I get it. And I get it because... There wasn't a ton of uh, explicit action, right? There's a lot of nuance to what's happening, more nuance than I understand, more nuance than most people will understand. I understand that the middleweight division's general skill level is quite low in comparison to other divisions. 
I understand that when you have a fighter who's as skilled as Israel Adesanya, and this is my opinion also, if you are of such superior skill level, it is your duty as a martial artist to prove it. Uh, that's my opinion. As a sportsman, though, as a prize fighter, it's your duty to just win, right? And I think that, and I'll round this out because this is going to be a circular point that we're going to have, you know, for 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 a while. I think on this is there are multifaceted hats that go into this, and I think that Israel Adesanya fought smartly. I think he should have done more personally because I think he has the opportunity to do more and the ability to do more. And I think that when he talks the way that he talks in press conferences and he says these things that I want to be the showman, I want to put on a show, I want to be main event of an international fight week card and you're in a fight with us, with a, a, another fighter who doesn't have the technical capability to force you to really dig deep, then I need to see more. I need to see the show. Give me the show, right? Give me the thing that you've advertised for me. Obviously, I didn't spend any money on a pay-per-view, but I spent a lot of time at six in the morning waiting up to watch this fight. Now, I think that this is also a bias for the European crowd and a skew for the European crowd, right? We've just watched an absolute masterclass from Alexander Volkanovsky, who, if it wasn't for Max Holloway's toughness, probably finishes the person that was in front of him last night, right? Constantly going for the finish, constantly looking to damage his opponent, constantly looking to, you know, do the fighting. Now, Israel fights with a different style, and I understand that he's much more of a sniper. He's much more of a, uh, you know, a, a hunter, if you will. But we've waited until 6.30 in the morning to watch this main event on this card that's so stacked with, with so many, as we said in the preview show, right? We had such high hopes going in and quite a few of these fights delivered. Quite a few of these fights delivered. However, watching back and waking up this morning and really thinking about it, it didn't feel like the first international fight week card that we've had in many, many years. It just didn't feel like that. It had all the, I tweeted about it uh, before the card. I said, lads, this really feels like a big fight card. It really feels like that. It feels like there's the reverence and the jeopardy. And watching it, I was like, it's just a bit flat. What do you think? And I think that last part is a is a very big piece of it. I think all I think all of what you said articulates this situation exceptionally well, better than I could, because I come from a passionate defender of all things, quit being a bunch of whiny cunts that just don't like anything. So it's not that I think everybody has to enjoy that fight. You don't like it fine grand i understand same as you i understand people sitting there and saying ah you know really really would have liked to have seen more i get that i'm always interested that there is very little pushback towards the challenger who isn't doing more and can't offer more and and 
my assessment would be as you're rolling your head and, and people can't see it and I'm gauging my my responses to Harry's reactions. My my guess would be that he's just limited and so he's doing the best he can. It then becomes on Izzy to go out there and show that style and, and do all the all of the things that you said. The tough part in there is the bit you mentioned about this being both entertainment and prize fighting. And it's just like the cost benefit analysis isn't necessarily there. We put this onus on a guy like Izzy to go out there and chase down and do more. You're already doing enough that it's clear you're the superior talent. Now we want you to do more for our entertainment sake. But there's no necessary benefit to him doing that. And, and I guess you would say, I guess the argument is, well, that's how he becomes the bigger star. That's how he becomes ingratiated to the fans and that fans tune in for him. And the reason that I struggle with that or the place where I struggle with that is that I haven't seen that enough from fans, right? For the, for the start of Demetrius Johnson's reign, it was do more. You're not doing enough. Then he went out and was doing more and it was still some kind of complaint, some kind of reason why he wasn't worth tuning in for, why he wasn't a big star, why he was, then it became the personality and he's not engaging and he's too small and he's all these different things. And I feel like we constantly move the goalposts on these things. So we want Izzy to be the guy that beat the shit out of Paulo Costa every single time. Right, we want him to just go out there and have that performance or the guy that sniped Robert Whitaker the first time around. We want that every single time. We've had absolutely dominant, fantastic champions like this before. Anderson Silva, George St. Pierre for much of his reign, right? Technically brilliant, but wasn't going to chase down and overextend if he didn't need to. If a finish comes, great. But if Jared Cannonier is there and is, is creating situations where Izzy doesn't feel fully comfortable to go out and chase or doesn't have an opportunity to land that kill shot, he's not going to do it. And we turn around and go, well, that's not enough for me. Well, we're not the ones in there getting our faces beat up, like getting the hell kicked out of us. And we're, the, we're also the ones, in many cases... That if he goes out there and does that, right, if he does the thing that everybody today is saying I want him to do, which is go out and chase and put on a show and further show that you are vastly superior to this guy and he gets knocked out, there aren't many people that are going to come forward and be like, well, we did kind of ask you to do that. So great. It's going to be the chorus of laughter and booze and what an idiot and why did he do this? And he goes out and he's winning and he could have just continued to hold on but he gets trying to be fancy and chasing and whatever and I just feel like it is another example to me of that duality of fans and, and dichotomy of fans where nothing very little is ever good enough right it feels to me MMA from a fan side of things is looking for those Goldilocks moments looking for just right and finding just right, threading that needle is really difficult. And so when it's not exactly what people want, the pushback feels greater 
than the celebration and the appreciation of when it is. So I disagree with this. And I disagree with this because I think... And I love that you disagree with this and I love these conversations. So let's go. Yeah, yeah. So I I understand where you're coming from with the you know, it's, it's just never good enough for fans. But I, th- I actually think that's a very small portion of the fan base. They're just very loud, right, on social media and things. I think that for most fans, what they want to see at the very, very base of it is action-packed fighting, right? That's what they want to see. I don't think, you know, many, many, many people and, you know, I've had conversations with people now after the damage speakers corner and guys are like, but I just use this as an escape, right? I use fighting as an escape. I use fighting as a way for me to not think about work or my family problems or this or that. I just tune in on Saturday and I maybe have a, you know, I've got a meal, maybe I've got a beer, maybe I've got a Diet Coke, whatever it is. And I just use it as my downtime. Right. So that so when you're doing that, you're not peeling back the layers necessarily and saying, fuck me, that specific feint leads to this specific counter and this and that. Right. And I think for those people, we must understand where they are coming from. And slowly, 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 generation by generation, we can drip feed them information that they may cursorily uh consume that will subconsciously elevate their understanding of the sport and therefore their understanding and appreciation of the sport. So I completely agree with you on that point. The thing that I would counter with is that this isn't baseball. This isn't football, right? This isn't go around and we're kicking a ball around a pitch and yeah, an injury can happen and somebody can whatever and a bad tackle. Sure, sure, sure. This is two men or two women going in there and and trying to separate each other from their consciousness. And so while I fully understand that you want to see an exciting dust up every time you sit down, the reality of, of this thing is just like you're not going to see an exciting soccer match every time you sit down. It's not going to be like part of the reason for a long time that they always articulated that it didn't take off in North America is because nobody's going to sit and enjoy a nil nil drop. People want to see six, five results where it's just up and down the pitch scoring goals. And I get all of that. But at what point do we, do we as arbiters of this sport, do we as, as people that cover this sport and, and speak about this sport have to do that drip part a little, like open up the drip a little bit more and say, look, I understand, but you just had that one. Now, sometimes there's this one. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with that is you... Okay, so there's there's the, the other parts to my point was you also want to see... People also want to see excellence, right? There is something extremely riveting about excellence. Now, your... Uh, your definition of excellence can be gray, right? But one of the reasons why Twitch blew up so much 
at the very, very start of its inception was because you got really, really solid, really high level gamers streaming what they were doing and how they were playing, right? And guys would, or females, would watch that stream because they understood that they weren't at that skill level, but consuming and watching excellence was riveting. Now, one of the reasons that Alexander Volkanovsky got so much uh, praise in that fight last night was because for, for a multitude of reasons, but I'll break them down into, you know, some sort of shallow ones is they knew most people know at this point, that Max Holloway is a brilliant fighter has been a brilliant fighter. Whether he still is, is yet to be seen, but he knew people knew that there was a very legitimate adversary standing across the cage to Alexander Volkanovsky last night, Alexander Volkanovsky was already a brilliant fighter and last night showed us more showed us a new level of excellence right i think that part of the problem with israel's performance is that the person standing across from him we saw in the first two rounds was nowhere near the level of of adversary that max holloway was or could be to alexander volkanovsky now, my argument, and I, I, I take your points, but my argument is in the face of, you know, a lot of fighters talk about legacy. They talk about this. They talk about that. When Israel Adesanya retires, if we have five more Jared Cannonier defenses, he can walk away and say, I had eight defenses of my title, whatever it is. But the people that were there and watched it will know and will look and will say, well, actually, it wasn't as dominant as the marketing packages are going to allow you to believe it was, right? Because those final three rounds were close. Israel was in control of the fight, but from the judging criteria, they were close. Kananir clearly has uh, the, the superior impactful shots just because he's a bigger, stronger man, right? And if he'd have landed maybe two or three more impactful shots, we could have seen rounds sway to him, right? So when you have, and I think this is where the, the sort of the dystopia comes from, is, and the confusion from fans, I think, is we know that you're an excellent fighter. So why not show us? Why not live up to that potential? Now, I get it. Israel came out afterwards and said, look, I just had a bad night. I just wasn't feeling it. I, I couldn't find my power shots. My feints were working well. The leg kicks were working well. The jab was working well, but I just couldn't bolt on. And, you know, when you and I were watching, I sort of said, I think he's looking for a left high kick. And right. he glanced off the top of the head a number of times, but never just found the precision that he's used to finding. And that's fine. Fighters can have off nights. This is, you know, the, 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 the real problem one of the, it's not a real problem, but one the of problem the that's being articulated is that he has an off night repeatedly and regularly now. Right, but I, I also think that one of the one of the the difficulties of of this kind of sport is if a player goes out for Manchester United and has a bad game, well, seven days later or maybe even sooner, he can go out and be like, "It was just a bad game because I'm playing well now." 
if Israel goes out like he does last night and has a bad night, well, he's judged on that for the next six months. Right. And, and that I think is a, is a difficult part because, you know, we've seen it ad nauseum with fighters. Sometimes you're just not feeling it. You know, you're just not in the mood to do the thing. Well, and and the other side of that is that there is literally another side of that, right? There is another person that is either looking to stifle whatever you're doing, that is looking to do their own things, that are making their own adjustments that, as Izzy said afterwards, right, part of what excited him about this matchup wasn't just him versus Jared, it was huge versus John Crouch, and that they had a good game plan. They came out and, and had some solutions to things. And Jared's just a bigger, stronger dude than he anticipated. And so it really does. I think I think it's so multifaceted and so interesting to me always. It gets really, really, really down to the core nuts and bolts of what personal philosophy is when it comes to viewing this sport, right? Like... I've said a number of times and I've said as openly as possible that the reason we're all here or should be here is for the fighters. But I also don't think we should lean into extremities on either side, right? We shouldn't be just shitting on every performance, but we also shouldn't be making excuses for every performance either. Right. And Every fighter is due and willing an off night. Israel, as we know, that he doesn't like to lead the dance. That's not his style. Hence, we get a Yoel Romero fight. And you can also understand with Yoel Romero that he might send your brain to the stratosphere if you make one mistake. But in the same vein, we see Israel able to drag people into his game like a Marvin Vittori or like a Paolo Costa. Right. And then we see when he has an adversary that's legitimately dangerous, like a Robert Whittaker, that the first fight, he puts him away in, in dramatic fashion. And in the second fight, he performs well again. Right. I think that there's, as, as you say, it's very, very, very multifaceted. But for me personally, my opinion is, and this is the way that I try to treat things when I compete is, you know, when you lock up with somebody, you can feel whether you're better than them or not. You can just feel it, right? There are things that you're doing that you can tell they either don't know, can't see, can't feel, and you just feel that there's a superiority there. Generally in martial arts, the, 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 underlying ethos is to dispatch of your opponent in the most efficient and clinical way, which means you should always be looking for the most efficient and clinical finish. Now where martial arts is so, you know, openly uh, debated and beautiful is that the way to an efficient finish and what an efficient finish is, is, you know, up for debate. And that's why we have styles, right? But it didn't feel to me last night as though Israel capitalized on what could have been a very efficient and clinical finish. And for that, I have to judge him for it. 
So the piece that I want to go back to as we move forward into Alexander Volkanovsky defeating Max Holloway, retaining his featherweight title with just an absolute virtuoso performance is that, and, and maybe I will acknowledge that, that maybe I am just too in the bubble at times and my feed is too many people that are in the bubble and not enough people that are on the edges of it. But I saw a lot of, we got two anticlimactic fights. We got two generally kind of just. And that's the part, guys, I wish you could see the face Harry made when I said that, when I, when I mentioned that those things showed up in my, in my feeds, because they did. People that cover this sport, people that love this sport going, well, but the, the two title fights were just, they were, you knew what was happening and they were done. And so when there's not an appreciation for what Volko goes out and does, which is absolutely make it clear after two close fights where these guys are microscopically different, microscopically separated through 10 rounds of absolute technical, messy, brilliant, violent engagement, he goes out and just makes it clear that he is now not only a, a small little inch ahead of Max Holloway, he's a step or two ahead of Max Holloway. And yet people still turned around and went, yeah, but it was kind of, you know, like <laughs> by the end of the second round, you know that it's done. And that's where I get the like, nobody's happy. Nobody's ever, there's nothing outside of Alex Pahea smashing home a left hook that sends Sean Strickland to the ancestral plane that is good enough for anybody. It's got to be that. It's got to be Yulia Stolyarenko in the first fight dislocating Jessica Rose Clark's arm. That's the part where I go, really? This is, there. there's no, pre, like, we just watched a masterclass from my opinion, the best fighter walking the earth today. And our takeaway is, yeah, but after three rounds, you knew it was over. That's that's where this reaction, this this feeling of I don't get it, I don't understand it, I want more, I want better, I want explanations comes from. Because you and I watched that fight and we're just enthralled. And I think it's one, I, I think it is such a brilliant performance from Alexander Volkanovsky, as you said. If it's anyone else other than Max Holloway, who is to use a hairy term, a tough bastard, they're out of there. They're gone. If it's if it's zombie again, if I mean that was that was the performance we saw against zombie. It was just against Max Holloway, who is the second best featherweight on the planet by a few steps. And yet Alexander Volkanovsky did that to him. And there were people that were like, yeah, but you know, it wasn't competitive. So I had a bit of an exchange with a gentleman on, on Twitter last night um, who I guess had a similar opinion to that. You know, his opinion was, we both agreed that this was a, a Volkanovsky masterclass, right? And and I think that that's, that's clear to see. However, my opinion was that Max, for his toughness, and because of his toughness, was still in the fight. I wasn't confident he was going to win. But when you have a man like Max Holloway, who 
had a cut so deep that it swallowed a swab, right? And then spat it back out with a different color than what it went in and doesn't let up the pace of his movement for a second, that's still a very dangerous fighter, right? Now, we saw some interesting things from Max. We saw frustration for the first time in a long time with, you know, the more wild spinning attacks and this and that, and a little bit more of the, you know, I'm just going to allow myself to get hit just to try and land on this guy. And I think that to your point of he's the second best featherweight and a couple of steps above everyone else, maybe. I think we saw Yair Rodriguez close the gap slightly. And from that fight, we've now seen a masterclass by Volkanovsky. I don't think it's fair right now. And I don't mean this in a disrespectful fashion or anything. I don't think it's fair for us to brand Max Holloway as anything right now, because I feel as though he's become an unknown commodity in the last two fights. However, in terms of the fight itself and, and sort of the, the, the dichotomy of what you're saying is happening both through your brain, but then is happening on, on what you think and what you see on the screen. Firstly, I mean, I just, I, I don't think social media <laughs> is a great place for this sort of stuff. I agree. I, I I agree with everyone. It felt like the tide was going only one way. But part of the brilliance and the beauty of the sport is when you have somebody like Max Holloway who refuses to go away and refuses to stay in, anything can happen in MMA. And we've seen these things happen in MMA. As the skill level increases and as we roll through the oscillations and the iterations and the evolutions of this game, I do think that it's going to be harder and harder to turn the tide. But we saw Max Holloway try. And if that's not one of the pillars of MMA, being so incredibly tough and durable and gritty and willing... I don't really know what is. And I walk away from that fight with nothing but adulation for for both fighters. Max Holloway just wasn't good enough last night. And that's fine, right? Like, that's fine. But we we should give him the platitudes for trying to be. And we should give him the platitudes for not giving up. We should give him the platitudes for being in that fight until the very last bell. But we also should heap praise on Volkanovsky for going away and deciding. It felt like deciding to believe in himself and to really bring his game to another level. And... I don't know about best fighter in the planet. I don't like to like when, when people <laughs> say that, I'm like, I don't know what that means. Really. Yeah. Completely. Mean. It is a writer thing that we do <laughs> to but, stir like, up debate and conversation. I don't know who beats Alexander Volkanovsky last night. Right. I don't know who beats him. He looked unbelievable. 
you know, like everything, the defensive mechanics, the defensive movements, the offensive movements, the transitional striking, the ability to turn back the grappling and, and force, you know, striking off the break. And, ah, oh, just, it's just when you watch, like we talked about, sorry, you the other week, right. And how that's like the new era of fighting. Well, what Volkanovsky showed you is that you can do, you don't need to do all of that stuff. You don't need to right. do all of the mad scrambles because you could be a level above that too. And that is exciting to me. Yeah. The, I think the thing that, that was head scratching and remains head scratching to me this morning at, at nine o'clock is we went into this. It's the third fight. We talked about how close this is, how evenly matched these guys are. There's all of this anticipation that it's going to be another great battle between clearly the 1A and 1B in this division, right? Many people feel Max won the second fight, should have never lost, should have regained, regained the title. These are the two best guys. And then we go out there and see one of them elevate himself to a different level and deliver just a masterful performance where he separates himself from the one B and makes it clear that I've moved forward. And we talked about this a little bit in the, on the way into this fight. I, I said throughout, I think those last two fights for Alexander Volkanovsky, he has leveled up both in terms of talent and proficiency in the cage, but also in confidence I think we saw that on display very early in the fight. He was he was in there and talking to Max and having moments and looking over at the commentary booth the way Max did against Calvin Cater. And to then come away from a fight that was so anticipated because of the closeness of the battle and not heap praise on the guy that made it not close when we know the level of these two, when we know the quality and the fiber of these me- these beings is just confusing to me. It just doesn't make sense to me because I come away from it and go, as you did, I don't know who beats this guy. He is so phenomenal at this thing that I want to see him do it every four months, every five months. And I just want to constant, I want to see what's next from him because I think there's more still. Not that I need more, but I think there is more. And to come away from it and just go, yeah, but it was pretty one-sided. Just feels like the the least interesting takeaway and the least, like the, the least appreciative response to what we saw. There's all these great things to pick from, as you were saying about Max, about Volk. And the thing a, a bunch of people lay on and, and lean on is, yeah, but it wasn't even close. Right. Which speaks to the brilliance of this dude, which speaks to how good he is. We want to see, like, we talk about Valentina Shevchenko and, and the excellence she displays going out there and dominating prior to Talia Santos. And, and we raise her up because of it. And she's fighting no disrespect to the women that she's beaten, but people that aren't the Max Holloway to her Alex Volkanovsky. And then Volko does this, and I see a whole lot of, yeah, well, it was pretty one-sided. Now there's, 
we'll get to the other the other question I have for you about there. Well, let's get to it now. Saw a lot of, you know, Joe Rogan said it in the cage. You've cleaned out the division. I've seen a few people do. They're like, ah, oh, well, certainly love to see the Henry Cejudo fight because he's cleaned out the division. Or I'd love to see the Charles Oliveira fight because he's cleaned out the division. And my response was Josh Emmett, Calvin Cater, Arnold Allen, and Mavsari Vloyev would like a word. And Bryce Mitchell is on hold in the waiting room because he's just waiting for a chance to come into the room as well, potentially. I'm more excited for this division right now because of that group that still hasn't faced Volk and is coming up and looks very good in the case of the two younger men in that in that pack or the three younger men in that collection of fighters. I don't think he has any... I understand him wanting to chase a second belt, but I don't think this is... Anderson cleaned out middleweight, George cleaned out welterweight. I think this is he beat the most popular and established names, and now people want to see him against more popular and established names. Yeah, he hasn't cleaned anything out. I think something, I mean, look, for the future of the division, the Volkanovsky performance last night couldn't have been better. Because there's no controversy that Max can turn around and be like, oh, but I almost won. Because he didn't, right? There, There is no easy argument that you can make to say, oh, well, with a couple of adjustments in that fight, Max would have done the thing. It doesn't seem that way. Yaya Rodriguez is a name that you should also add to the list that you've just stated. So we've got, you know, Six fellas there, five or six fellas that Volkanovsky has not fought, but are all legitimate opponents for him. Maybe a couple of, uh, you know, maybe a year or two away from being really ready to, to be in that conversation. But there is at least three fights in there that Volkanovsky should be looking at right now. The move to 155. <laughs> I understand, but it feels to me as though this is rooting in Volkanovsky just not being paid enough because he knows if he goes up and he does the double champ thing and he beats Oliveira, well, we're off to the races, boys. There's a new contract negotiation and it's this and it's that. I have, from a sporting analytical perspective, I have absolutely every single interest <laughs> in right. versus Charles Oliveira. Give me all of that. <laughs> Give me all of Volkanovsky Chandler. Give me all of Volkanovsky Poirier. Give me all of Volkanovsky Gaethje. Just line them up month after month and let's just see them one right. by one. Right. But I also think that from a meritocracy perspective, it just feels as though the UFC machine and the UFC production, and I'm go I've got a question for you at the end of this, the UFC machine and production has conditioned its athletes and its fighters to now win a title and immediately look to move to another division. Because, you know, Connor did it. And people thought it was great. He sat atop 
the you know the unique photo of him with two belts draped across both shoulders you know the irish flag etc cetera, etc cetera, that's become an iconic chase and max said something pre-fight that i thought was very interesting and he was talking about how he felt disrespected and how he felt that people had sort of written him off because he lost to Volkanovski and that people didn't realize that there were hierarchical levels when you get to the UFC, right? Like getting to the UFC is difficult enough. Now go and fight your way to the top 15. Now go and fight your way to the top 10, top five, top three, then be a champion. Okay. All of that's hard. Now hold it. Right. And I think that the thing that was interesting to me and is interesting to me is now it feels as though, as I've said, the belt is more of a gateway to other belts rather than the belt and the precipice of your division is the goal. Do you think that that and sort of the marketing machine that the UFC has and the fact that the the value of the belt is so low, a single belt, right? The value of the belt is so low in comparison to what it used to be. Do you think that that influences the way that people view individual title fights, right? Because my, my reference for that, and I'll come back to you, is is you just mentioned that lads are looking at that fight with Volkanovski and saying, oh, well, it was one-sided, it was whatever. Is that because they're like, yeah, cool, he's a 145-pound champion and he's done that a few times, but what about 155? So the the it's already like a foregone conclusion that, oh, yeah, you could do well in your division at 145, that's great, but what about over here? So first and foremost, shout out to Luke Thomas and the Morning Combat crew for the phenomenal interview with Max that you were talking about where he referenced the tiers and the levels and the going up and all of that stuff. I think the two division thing, the double champ thing is the ongoing fixation, both of athletes and fans. So from athletes, it is the next way to establish a legacy, next way to prove your greatness. It is also a gateway, as you said, to greater pay and greater opportunity and all of those things. For fans, I think there is a piece of it that is what you just said. Great, fine. You you can beat the guys in your division, but what about the guys that are bigger than you? There's just that. I'm going to sound like an old man shaking my, my hand at a fist here or my, my hand at a fist. My hand at a clap, my fist at a cloud, Abe Simpson style. There is just that lack of satisfaction with people being the best in their division, full stop. They're just, it's not enough anymore. I think some of that is we haven't seen contenders built to the level of status and the understanding of how good they are in many cases so that when you get a dominant champion that then is facing a contender that a lot of people are only portionally familiar with 
only know a little bit about. They haven't seen all of the fights. They don't necessarily feel like they're that great. It becomes the foregone conclusion and the excitement about that fight dwindles away, right? Shevchenko, Tyler Santos, a perfect example. People aren't necessarily aware of what she brings to the table. Val has been Val for a number of years. This is going to go one way. And then it's a pleasant surprise when Tyler Santos is game as can be and gives her a run for her money. And so I think it becomes the, well, let's take this one guy I know and put him against this other guy that I know. And then we get a bigger thing. And it's always just the next bigger thing. Like this sport has continued and the UFC and and particularly the pay-per-views. And I, I talked about this a little bit on Monday and I apologize for that podcast not coming out entirely because it got clipped for some reason. But there's just this constant push for the next big thing. It's got to be more. Okay, we have a title fight on every pay-per-view. Now we need two. Now we need people chasing. Now we need two title fights, but one of them is somebody coming up from another division. So we have more belts on the show. Like you and I and and many other people are very excited. And I did absolutely leave Yair Rodriguez out of that, that list. He fights Brian Ortega in two weeks. He wins that fight. I think he can still make a legitimate case for, okay, I got next. Sorry, Josh Emmett, my turn. Because he's been here longer. He's done more things. He's beaten better people. And if he beats Brian Ortega convincingly, he can say, well, everybody thinks I beat Brian Ortega. Half of the people think you beat Calvin Cater. But I think there is just this fascination with give me the biggest fight possible at all times. It's not, it, it can't be, this is just the next, the next fight to make. And when it's somebody like Volko, who isn't a great big star and doesn't necessarily have the magnetic personality that you're or the gravitational pull, pull that you're tuning tuning in every time he steps out there, no matter what. You want to see him in the next biggest fight possible against the most established name possible and all of that. Now, I think there are degrees to it where we've seen, you know, managers come out and say their, their fighter who is a champion is going to go up and fight at not only 85, but 205 and all of this stuff. And it gets... There, there gets to the point of absurdity, right? Here he's making the jerk off motion. Correct. But I think that's what we get to is, is we get to that point where the contenders aren't established enough or recognized for being as good as they are. And we go, rather than that, why don't we have him face this other person that I know? And if they have a belt, then that's cool and we can do that. The, the real trick of this and the real like rub of this is that the minute we get a two division champ, everybody's like, cool, but can we get the belts back into circulation? Because now one of these motherfuckers isn't defending. Now this motherfucker isn't defending one of these belts and we've got to sit here and wait and shit gets piled up. It was fine when Amanda Nunes had two and didn't have anybody to really defend against in any, in either division because she had beaten everybody and featherweight isn't a real division. But when Connor did it and held up featherweight and went to lightweight and then held up lightweight, it was like, well, this is, 
Now, great, we had that wonderful moment, iconic photos, first ever champ champ. But the minute that happened, we need it to, we need it to not happen. We need it to not be the thing. And everybody just started doing it. And so I think it's, I think it's a right here in the now, this is what I want. But when we get there, it kind of turns out that it's not really what we, we should want. And there's, I get it. I get why it happens. Same as you give me all of the Alex Volkanovsky, Charles Oliveira. Yes, please. Fantastic. I, I really also would be quite happy with Alexander Volkanovsky hanging out at 45 and continuing to do fantastic things and test himself against those five or six people we mentioned and whoever else comes up next because there's they keep coming. This is why I think I constantly drone on about paying attention further down the line. Because, yep, as you said, a couple of those people are probably a year, maybe 18 months away from really being ready to, to fight for the belt, but they've got that time. If there's five people in line, those people that are third, fourth, and fifth have at least 12 months to get that one more win, to establish their name a little more, to grow as a fighter a little more. So let's just, let's just do it. Let's just get it going. Does that sufficiently answer your question about double champs and then some? think so i think you make some really interesting points and the they they again come down to how the ufc is architecting mma as a sport and i've just written down uh, a little paragraph there because i think that this is a speaker's corner topic uh, it screamed out to me as you started Line me up. Um, and I, I don't know the answers. I'm going to, I'll need to think about it and really formulate my opinion, but it feels as though there is a line of logic that is difficult to argue with in saying it's a little bit like, addiction right when you i've never been addicted to drugs but let me do the 100 percent it is because it's like you first try the cocaine let's just say and you're like fuck me this is insane and then two months later you do it again and you're like oh yeah that was really really good and then it's a month later and then it's three weeks later and two weeks later and the frequency of the of the the pressing of the button becomes more and more and more and then the dosage must increase because the pushing of the button isn't enough whereas really what we're doing here is instead of plastering over with new belts and new divisions and cards with four or five or six or seven belts on it the, the 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 sort of there's no gauze in the wound of what is poorly built divisions or a move away from poorly built poorly built divisions and i shouldn't say poorly it's just differently built divisions because what you just said there about the prospects 
and the contenders not really being contenders is when we watched, and I know, I know he gets a bad rap and whatever, but when Joe Silva was making fights, the next contender was so glaringly, burningly obvious that nobody could see any other contender. There was one, maybe two guys, but there was a real hierarchy to the way in which it was sorted. And it was plain to see. And you knew that, let's say number three, you couldn't wait for number three versus maybe number four, maybe number two, at best, maybe number five, because that then showed you who's after whoever's the number one contender or whoever's the, the, the number two contender, depending on injuries and whatever it was, right? I think that the rigor of that method, I'm not saying it didn't have its flaws. Of course it had its flaws. And from what we've heard about the way that Joe Silva did some of the actual negotiations, there was plenty of flaws. Yes. But one of the merits of that, I think, is that people were forced to care because the contender had been pushed in your face so much and you'd seen all the questions asked that you need to see asked before they're presented in front of the champion and the champion, because they had already been through that myriad of tests were extremely valuable to the division. If Arnold Allen goes in against Volkanovsky, I don't think we've seen all the questions asked of him just yet. Like, okay, we've seen him against a rangy striker in Dan Hooker. We've seen him against a solid submission grappler with a bit of punching in Sadiq Youssef. We've seen him against the veteran um, in, uh, what's your man's name? The Rat Pack fella, Gilbert Melendez, right? We've seen some of these things, but have we seen him against an elite wrestler yet? Right. No. Have we seen him against a guy with insane one-hitter-quitter power? No. Have we seen him against a guy that pushes a ferocious, unmatched pace? Not really. Not really. Right? So, like, we've gone from him getting pieced up by Mads Bunnell five years ago or whatever it was, and we've watched him progress so incredibly brilliantly over that time, but when fighters of old were presented, they were like, this is the guy. And this is the resume that makes him the guy. Well, Yaya Rodriguez is the closest thing to that that we have. And he's got to get through Brian Ortega. And Brian yeah. Ortega is the, by the way, if he gets hold of your neck, you're probably done. If he gets hold of your back, you're probably done, guy. Well, so I I Go ahead, sorry. I'll, I'll finish on this sentence. I think there is something incredibly poignant in what you've said there that we're the state of MMA and the state of the UFC driving the subculture of MMA seems to be pertaining to far more short-term cash grab, short-term transitionary moments than the long-term architecture of the sport so i think there is 
all kinds of stuff to unpack in this. And I think we did a little bit on the matchmaking speakers that we did. Speakers Corner, by the way, a part of the Severe MMA podcast network on Patreon. Go and subscribe. It's the start of the month. You will you will greatly appreciate spending that. I think it's $7 that I spend every month and it's hours of endless entertainment and insight. So I think there's a bunch of it here. I think the fact that matchmaking wise, we have fights like Brian Ortega and Yair Rodriguez in two weeks time, rather than each of those men facing one of these emerging fighters is problematic because we get to a situation where if Brian Ortega wins that fight, well, we've seen him against the champion and we don't need to see it again. And then we're going to probably a Josh Emmett who just was in a fight that maybe he won at, at best. It was super close. And so if it's not him, then it needs to be Arnold Allen. The guy it should be based in terms of like actual meritocracy is Arnold Allen. He's 9-0 in the UFC. You don't win nine straight fights and not even be close to a title shot. This is stupid. But I think part of the problem with it, in addition to the matchmaking piece, and this is, this is a chicken or the egg conversation, right? Are the matches being made this way because that's what the fans want? Or is the UFC making it this way and that's reinforcing positions of fans and lack of understanding and appreciation of, of people on the come up? And so it's really interesting. It's, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly about what you said when Joe Silva was there. Obviously, there were flaws to the methods of Joe Silva's madness. I think it's also a part of, you know, the, the people that are, stationed at, at some of these rankings and I've talked to lots of them I talked to Rafael Faziv going into this fight next weekend and said you know not looking past Rafael Dos Anjos but what comes next and he's like none of these guys ahead of me are gonna want to fight they're all like they all want to fight McGregor they all want to fight for the title and when I say well what about me you're you don't have a fight what about me there's some excuse now I understand not wanting to fight backwards not wanting to fight an oncoming talent like Rafael Faziv or Arnold Allen in this in this featherweight division. But like at some point, you got to fucking fight. At some point, you have to do things. To me, you have to do things that elevate your standing to where it's valid that you move forward. It's justified that you move forward. And if it's constantly measuring you against guys that have already been there, then, then we constantly run the risk of having nobody because they can't get past the three or four people that have already been there and are sitting at the top of the division. So I don't know what the fix is. Like, it feels like we need a big reset button. It feels like we need a great big rollout of, you know, meet the up and coming stars. It feels like we need people to pay greater attention to things like fighter on the rise and fighter to watch and fighters to watch at the start of the year. Like it, it feels like there needs to be a deeper attention and effort committed to by all parties involved, promoting some of these younger talents and making it to where what you were saying of Joe Silva and those days of this is the fucking guy and you need to pay attention. 
Whereas right now, you have some people saying, this is the guy you need to pay attention. And a lot of people going, nah, I don't want to. And that becomes just such a difficult, like, what do you do from there? You can't force people to watch. You can't force people to care. Even when the performances are great, they don't necessarily latch on. And then you're just fucking stuck. Yeah. I paying attention thing and like the everyone should invest more. I mean, yeah, but I I just I think that you 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 gave a chicken and egg thing, right? Where you were like, ah, uh, is it that fans want these type of fights, or is it the UFC are architecting it? I think the fans largely are completely driven by the UFC. You know, it wasn't so long ago that if the fans on Twitter or social media put enough stock and enough heat and enough fervor behind a fight, Dana would make it, right? That doesn't happen as much anymore, right? You see a fan or you see a a fighter go out on Twitter and say, I want this guy and loads of fans get behind him and then we don't see him for three months (laughs) right i i feel like the fans largely are driven by what the ufc gives them and allows them to to get in that relationship and it feels as though the ufc has decided that MMA is going to become more of a reality TV show than it is the sport that we loved and adored. Like now we've got VT packages for almost all of the main card fights and we've got adverts all over the broadcast for everything, every clock, every walkout, every this, every that is sponsored by whoever and whatever. And John Anik is constantly doing ad reads and this and that and the next thing. We're putting more stock into what's happening pre-post-fight press conference, this person, Instagram, that person, Twitter, than we do about... I say we, and I'm talking about, again, the sort of the the overarching feeling I get from the global fan base is that we care less about the fights and more about the results or the pre-results of the fights. Right. I think that's architected largely by the UFC. I think you're probably right. Like... I think you're probably right. And, and listen, this is my, my position or my hesitation is probably based on my being a relentlessly optimistic, want it to be better. God, can't it be better? Because it was, it was, it was better when the way that I loved it, there's some nostalgia, there's some whatever. I hope it, I hope we can find a little bit more balance because it is all about balance. We'll move off of these title fights and get into some of these other things because there is stuff that I do want to discuss that I know you want to discuss. The first of those for me 
is Alex Pahea goes out, defeats Sean Strickland, knocks him out, punches his ticket quite literally to a championship opportunity. Izzy mentions him after, after his fight and says, look, we all know who's next. It's that dude that was kickboxing. This is going to be MMA. Come get some. From a technical position, very little experience watching Alex Pahea in a cage. You will surely do a deep dive at some point. But just from what you've seen thus far, is he the guy that can bring some of that need to see greatness out of Izzy when they get in there? Maybe. Who knows? Uh, I mean, if you look at Bahia's style, he comes forward a lot and, and he throws his kicks and he throws his shots, but a lot of them are like 30%, 35%. For him, anyway. Now, you know they they upplay the power of Pahea a lot, and I think that it's fair to do so to a point. He clearly has big power. They make him out to be this gargantuan, massive man, and he's the same size as Izzy, right? Like exactly the same size. Yeah, I the measurements are the same. They just composition-wise look a little different. Right, but that's because one fella maybe had more calcium as a child than the other. Like, okay, cool, I guess. Um, you know, the the performances we've seen from Pahea have been both good in the stand-up, but like, I just don't, I don't think we know anything about him. And this is kind of my issue. And this goes back to the thing that we're talking about sort of right now about the contender. We he was put in against some very average scrubby dude in Michaelidis or whatever his name was. And they're like, everyone's like, Oh, he's going to wrestle him. Your man's a fucking kickboxer. Like what? And he did wrestle him and he did do all right in those exchanges. And he ended up getting whacked by a flying knee. Fine. You know, these things happen multiple time world champion kickboxer if you allow room for something mad like that, right. these things happen in MMA and, and in kickboxing, clearly. He moved on to his next fight, and I've already forgotten that fella. Br- Bruno Silva. Right, who's supposed to be, you know, a grappler who doesn't shoot any takedowns in the entire <laughs> fight and wants to stand with him. Like He's I the just, guy that likes knockouts and, ha- and happens to have a black belt. Right, like, to me, uh, this is where I think my disdain for this situation is pertaining. Right. Like Israel came in and they were like, it it feels like even in the time that Israel's been in the UFC, there's been a gargantuan shift in the way the UFC runs because Israel comes in. Was his debut Rob Wilkinson? Yes. Okay. So Rob Wilkinson, an easy enough matchup. Right. Like that was the the real litmus test to be like, is this guy an absolute shit house with MMA right. or is he not? And obviously he dispatches of Rob Wilkinson in, in, in beautiful fashion. Fine. No problem. But after that, we saw some actual tests. Right. right. We saw him go against the Wiley veteran. We saw him go against the wrestler. We saw him go against the guy that's supposed to have the big power and the things and the stuff. And then he gets the title does the title things fine. And now we are where we are. 
but you've put Alex Bahia into a title fight based on beating a regional level scrub and some fella that you've decided to give a black belt on a VT that may not even fucking have one that likes to throw hands. Like, what are we doing? You know? And then you give him a Sean Strickland who he's the perfect opponent. Right. We've talked offline and I'm not going to, you know, air those conversations or dirty laundry, but it is clear that Sean Strickland has some uh, adverse mental health struggles that are like most fighters medicated by fighting. Right. (laughs) Sean Strickland has a very awkward style, has a very, uh, different striking style to most fighters. He can do a bit of the wrestling. He's a hard-nosed bit of a cunt when he's in there. Like, he's happy to get in your face. He's happy to do the bullying. But he also walks forward with his hands right by his fucking chin, right? And he stands like he's going to ask you for some more or maybe he's a bit cold clutching a scarf. Like, and if I'm Alex Bahia, I'm like, this guy has nothing for me here. And what did we say in the preview? We said if he's going to win this fight, he has to offer something to Bahia. He has to force him to grapple, to wrestle, to not just be able to throw those kicks to the legs and the body and the arms and have nothing coming back. And Sean walked him down and threw 30% jabs and a couple of crosses and then, rightly so, looked extremely cautious when shots were coming back at him didn't use any of those shots to level change, didn't use any of those shots to set up counters, just looked completely in defensive mode the entire time. And if you're doing that against the Supreme Striker, he's going to put you away. The finish that he actually put him away with was gorgeous. He was walking, 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 circled off to his right, to his left-hand side with a right foot pivot. And as he was doing it, Sean Strickland fell right into the pocket as the left hand was coming in. Puts him away, fine. But what have we learned? I don't, we've learned that, okay, he's a good striker. We knew that. We, yeah, we knew that. What now? You know? So now we're going to go in against Israel Adesanya. And is he saying, oh, it's an MMA fight? It's a, is Izzy going to wrestle? Maybe. (laughs) It'd be interesting if he did. But, and, and to be honest, I would love that because then we could say, well, this is like Alexander Volkanovsky. We have seen Israel show us something. When Francis Ngannou fought Stipe for the second time and the sprawl happened, right. genuinely, I, I eked with glee. Right. Because I was like, this motherfucker's learned something. Right. We've seen something new and interesting and different from this guy. And I bet you, when Francis sprawled on that single leg from Stipe, Stipe went, oh, fuck. Right. He figured it out. This thing that I had in my back pocket to beat this monster is now gone. Right. When do we see that? When Francis Ngannou started double-legging Sihil Gagné all over the gaff, I was like, what the fuck? This is brilliant. Do we see that from Izzy? Maybe. Do we see a five-round, very technical, very, very dry drab? Both of these strikers really respect each other. The cage is massive, so it's harder to close him down. You know, do we see that? Very possibly. But it just 
fills me with a little bit of disdain. I understand it's middleweight. I understand there aren't a line of contenders, but can we see a little bit more, a little, little bit more legitimacy from Bahia in the octagon before we do this? And the thing that truly gets under my skin about it is that people are more excited for that fight than they will be, than they were, or they will be more excited because you can put the, these guys are rivals. Pahea's beaten him twice and show him knocking out Izzy and all of that stuff that is great on the VT. And it's great. Like Izzy is going to talk trash to this man, 100%. And people will be more excited for that than they are for opportunities of people that have answered a lot of these questions you're talking about in whatever division. And that's the difficult part for me. Going to just kind of breeze through Bam Bam and, and Robbie Lawler, a great performance for Brian Barbarina, takes some shots, finds a home for some elbows, finally gets Robbie Lawler kind of wobbled and rocked and, and gets him out of there. A great win for Bam Bam. I want to stop down and, and sort of touch down on Sean O'Malley and Pedro Munoz for a little bit. Obviously, anticlimactic, disappointing. I think this is part of also the reason why People came away from last night feeling like eh, it wasn't what they wanted, right? We all were excited for this. This was supposed to be the test. This is when we see it. It looks like it's going that way. And then we get an eye poke and we're done. What did we think? We got, what, eight minutes of action between these two. Pedro Munoz smashes home some leg kicks in the first round. It's a close round. Sean seems to be making some adjustments, some reads, some changes. And then we're we're paused and and we don't get anything more. In that eight minutes, what did you see that you liked? What did you see that remains a question for you? So my first reaction was these things happen in MMA. Um, I was impressed with Pedro Munoz, uh, but I also it didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go. Uh, Pedro is 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 provisionally a fighter that is very forward pressure, very ducking in and out of the pocket, wants to get in your face, wants to land big shots, wants to exchange with you, is happy to trade. Sean O'Malley is obviously not that fighter. He's a guy that wants to be on the outside, picking you off and, and doing beautiful striking things. I thought that how this was going to go, and maybe this was the game plan, was... There would be the leg kicks, and we saw those leg kicks, and I thought they were good. I was very impressed with Sean O'Malley's ability to take them. He didn't look uh, like he stumbled after many of them. He looked as though he took them. He recognized them. The leg and the feet looked strong and stable. Shawnee Podcast tweeted out something that this may be similar to the blahovic rakic fight, where you know, we're going to see whether somebody's body can actually withstand some of this damage. And it looked to me as though he could, which is great, right? That's just great news for Sean O'Malley. But it also looked to me as though in that first round, O'Malley was a little bit frustrated that Pedro wasn't going to play the game that O'Malley wanted him to play. That was the interesting wrinkle in the first. In the second, I thought O'Malley made brilliant adjustments, was far more aggressive, looked to be finding his one-two. A little bit of a naive stiff arm, right? Like, I, I have no reason to, to see why O'Malley needed to stiff arm out of the pocket with his fingers outstretched. Um, you know, Israel 
does a similar thing where he extends his arm and he makes it a fist, right? And he did that last night against Jarek Ananir, almost like a jousting stick. And as Pedro came in, O'Malley sort of stiff-armed out, but stiff-armed with his fingers out. I see no reason why you can't throw a jab and just leave your hands out there. But look, this is, you know, the heat of the moment, these things happened. What did I like? I liked O'Malley's adjustments. I liked Pedro Bruno's leg kicks. I would have loved to have seen what was going to happen in the rest of the second and the third, because I had the first round for Pedro. I had the second round looking like it was uh, an O'Malley round. Obviously there's, you know, two and a half minutes left. There's plenty of things to happen, but um, I would have been very interested to see what the adjustments happen. I think what you do, I said this to you when we were watching it is that's uh, a fight night main event. Uh, Give that five rounds, rebook that and let's see it. Because Pedro Munoz is a, a great test for O'Malley right now. And I think it looks like he had all of the things that we were expecting to see tested in that first and half round. I believe I stole that suggestion. I can't remember if I gave you attribution for it. I think I did. I think that was one of the ones that I gave you attribution for. Um, I agree. I'd be interested to see if Team O'Malley is interested in not fighting on a pay-per-view card. I believe he's just fought exclusively on pay-per-view events throughout his UFC career. So that would be interesting. I think the main event might be something that that pulls him there. Because as I said in the in, in the 10 things last night, this guy fancies himself fighting for championships at some point. And if that's where you want to go, then you need to start logging some five-round fights to get yourself ready for him, to see what you're like over those two extra rounds that you haven't been in there with. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'd be very interested to see what O'Malley and his team think of that idea going forward. Final prelim of the night, Jalen Turner, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this podcast, when I tell you that Harry called this fight to AT from an analytical breakdown, here's what I think is going to happen perspective. I am not just being nice to my co-host. I am not just gassing him up a little. We talked about this. He said, who do you like? I said, I think I like Riddell. A little bit more experience, whatever, all the different things. He said, I think Jalen Turner's quite good. I think he clips him and Riddell shoots and he leaves the neck and Jalen Turner finds a choke and and we're done. And Jalen Turner hit him with a right and Brad Riddell didn't like it and he shot in for a takedown and Jalen Turner found the neck and we were done. And watching the stream with Harry just a, a tick behind me as we were watching it last night and him seeing his intelligence and analysis play out in front of him and, and reacting to it was one of the more joyous moments of the last couple of weeks for me. It's, it was wonderful to experience. Good sir, this is why I think you are one of the sharper minds in this business. And the more people should listen to you, continue to do the speaking about why you think Jalen Turner is such an interesting problem in this lightweight division. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. It's not often that I get it that nailed on. I think, you know, like I I, I did a speaker's corner on the Israel adesanya Jaro Kananir fight and it kind of went how I expected it to go for two rounds and then it didn't, you know? Um the Yuani and Jacek Weili Zhang fight kind of went how I expected it to go. And then, you know, I had the, the first one, Rosanami Yunus, and it went absolutely completely nothing like I'd spent hours thinking about how it was going to go. Um, so, you know, 
these things certainly do happen in MMA. Um, Jalen Turner, the interesting thing to me is he's had tests already. He's took losses already, and he's took losses at good points in his UFC career because he has, he just has a feeling to me. And this is a, a really wishy-washy, really crap way of explaining this. But I feel as though with the amount of fights I've watched, there starts to, you start to develop a, uh, just like a sense of a fighter. Brad Riddell is a good fighter. I, I enjoy him. I enjoy watching his fights. Um, but Jalen Turner, you watch him and you just feel like there's lots of potential that's untapped there. Uros Medic was on a bit of a streak and looked like a killer. And, you know, Jalen Turner came out and said, that's cool, watch this. Um, I felt as though the Styles matchup for Jalen Turner was a really, really good one um, because of all the things that Spencer said. I feel like Brad Riddell shoots with his neck available. I think Brad Riddell and the the length of Turner's arms in comparison to Riddell's reach and range is a difficult thing to breach. But, you know, Jalen Turner has an insane frame for 155. He knows how to use that frame increasingly. But, you know, as, as we go from fights, he becomes more and more comfortable in that range. And um, he's one of those fighters that is happy to go wherever the fight goes. If he finds an opportunity to look for a neck, he will take it. If he finds an opportunity to, to strike and make you give your back on the ground, he'll do that. He's happy to stay on the feet. He's happy to fight going backwards. He's happy to fight going forwards. And I think that comfortability is something that's really, really important for somebody like Jalen Turner, who, you know, I don't expect him to win a title. I don't expect him to be in the top five, but I think he is a fighter that has a lot more potential. I could be wrong. He could improve and, and get to there. But we're watching a guy from fight to fight start to understand more about who he is as a person and as a fighter. And the base structure, the base construction, the base scaffolding of his game is one that's fluid and transitionary. And I think that against most guys, that puts him in a good place. Five straight wins, five straight finishes, perfect finishing percentage for his career. He's 27 years old. Very, very interested to see what comes next for him because he is one of those guys that there isn't going to be a lot of people rushing to want to sign that contract and get in there with him when he doesn't have a number next to his name and it doesn't get them that much further ahead. Ian Gary, we have to touch on him. Uh, good performance against Gabe Green continues doing the right things for someone at this point of their career. We talked in the lead up on the severe show. We talked offline. This was a fight where we both felt if Ian Gary was the guy that he is purported to be and carries himself to be, we will see that shine through on Saturday. I feel for the most part it did. I also think that it was a, another one of those performances that that reiterates for me that there's still some work to do. There's still some growth. There's still some development. 
And all of that is fine because he's 24 years old and that was his 10th fight. And this is about where I expect him to be given those numbers. What did you like about about Ian Gary's performance? I thought it was brilliant, to be honest. I thought it was a perfect performance for the perfect point in his career. I think, you know, everything that we've said about Israel and the sort of the critiques that I have against Israel is Israel is a man at the height of his powers, right? The height of his striking powers. He is exactly who he is going to be in the striking realms right now. That's who he is, right? Ian Gary is a guy that's improving swiftly, fight to fight, 24 years old, moved himself to a different camp, and is just coming on leaps and bounds. We saw him shoot for takedowns. We saw him hit inside trips. We saw him take chances. We saw him take risks. We saw him go outside of his comfort zone in a real proving ground. That to me was the most important takeaway from this fight. Going backwards and fighting across the 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 the, the tram line of the cage, he does pretty well. You know, he got clipped a couple of times against Gabe Green. These things happen. This is fighting, but overall, he was great. You know, like he went in there. He took risks when he wanted to take risks. He managed the fight when he needed to manage the fight. And he looked good doing it, you know? I think that Sean and I, and and I'm going to stop this meme now, but Sean and I did a speaker's corner the other day that's going to come out soon about experience over skill acquisition. Going in and getting experience and seeing and feeling different fighters, feeling different situations is as much of an attribution to your career as just focusing in the gym about, skills right so for ian gary at 10 fights or whatever he is you go in and you take all the three round fights you can you go in and you do 15 minutes and you get dominant decisions right if a finish presents itself sure why not take it no problem but you go in there to rack up that cage time and feel as comfortable as possible in there so for me full marks to ian gary couldn't be happier yeah fully agree a a really good performance there were some moments where you know you you see areas that he can continue to work on things that he can continue to build upon but a a very good performance um televised premium opener dricus duplessis defeats brad tavares fight starts where it looks like it's going to be the veteran does the veteran things and then all of a sudden, Dricus Duplessis kind of says, no, I'm a better athlete, and I punch really hard, and and just mashes Brad Tavares' nose into his face with a beautiful knee and goes out and wins the decision. I think there's still just a bunch of questions about Dricus Duplessis that, that we will hopefully continue to ask and see answered going forward. No need to really spend a lot of time on that. I do want to settle in for a moment, at least, to get your thoughts on Andre Muniz, who gets a unanimous decision win over Uriah Hall. It's a clean sweep of the scorecards, but I feel like it was a performance that a bunch of people came away from probably a little disappointed. Muniz is a guy that, you know, continues continues to be undefeated in the UFC. It's now nine straight wins and I believe 17 of his last 18, which is ridiculous, but it wasn't the dominant submission finish that a lot of people were expecting i still think it's a very good performance that moves him forward what says you the question coming into this was which uriah hall turns up and it didn't feel to me as though a poor uriah hall turned up it felt to me as though 
the threat of the takedown from Muniz stifled the kicking game of Uriah Hall. I think that's fine. But that's just an adjustment that was made in fight. I don't think that's uh, uh, Uriah Hall not mentally plugged into this fight turned up. Um, was it the best Uriah Hall we've ever seen? No, no, it wasn't. But we got to see Muniz doing some things on the feet. And when he got to his takedowns, the passing and the oscillation between the passing and some strikes was good. I still think that he needs to move away from some of the pure grappling aspects of his game. And we need to start looking at landing uh, damage on the ground and using damage as a primary mechanism to pass and to get submissions. That's how you score in the judges scorecard. And that's how you win fights in MMA in 2022. So I think an adjustment to his game that allows him to land more damage and to care less about, you know, getting to a side control and being comfortable in a half guard and using the half guard to anchor his, himself as opponent and do all of the things, you know, I don't need to ramble on that will uh, prove to pay dividends in, in the long term. But from a pure grappling perspective, he looked great, right? He took Uriah Hall down each round. He passed, he forced Uriah Hall to, to give his back. He took the back and he controlled the back for significant periods of, of, of the fight. Again, I will go back to the point I've, I've labored before. When you have back control, finishing in MMA at the highest level from the back with rear naked strangles is very, very difficult because of one, the defensive skill set of your opponent is probably pretty high. And two, you've got big chunky gloves on. Getting underneath the chin with those gloves is far more difficult than when you're just trying to do it with one hand, right? I would like to see fighters who are dominant submission grapplers start to mix in uh, more strikes from the back, more elbows from the back. And as we've discussed previously, if we can start to look for belly down, back body locks and whatever, uh, Ethan Crellinston, who is a Canadian grappler, has a, an instructional out at the moment for back defenses and back attacks. And some of the stuff that he is doing at the moment is looking to force belly down exchanges from body triangles because when that happens in a pure grappling perspective you have two options you can commit your hands to the mat to try to force the roll through which means you're not belly down anymore two hands on the mat means what you're not protecting your neck or you can protect your neck and you're stuck belly down right so that's the dilemma that's posed i would like to see that more in mma because you then have the added dilemma of getting your face punched in. And I think that a back body lock bridging through the lower back, landing big strikes is the worst position you can end up in, in MMA in its totality. So Andre Manus overall, I was impressed with his ability to control the back and these sorts of things, but uh, I'd have liked to have seen more. A good win. It's an opportunity to keep moving forward. I mean, at the end of the day, victories are the things that continue to propel you forward. You win this fight. You're now 5-0 and in the UFC. We were talking yourself, myself, and Ian O'Neill um, as the fight was playing out of, of who comes next. And, and a guy like Jack Hermanson felt like a very good opportunity, a very good matchup, a, a good name. So we'll see who that ends up being. Macy Barber gets a unanimous decision win over Jessica I. Jessica I subsequently retires. It was the tenacious performance that I wanted to see for Macy Barber, who 
feels like a lot of people abandoned ship when she had a couple losses. I think those losses were the best thing that could have possibly happened for her. It has caused her to stop talking about championships in the future and all of those things. It has prompted her to settle into a gym where she is now building consistency and rapport with coaches at Team Alpha Male. And I think it also kind of the, especially probably the Alexa Grasso fight made her forced her to realize that she is not a technical striker and her best attributes right now at 24 still developing are her toughness and her tenacity. Those are the things that won her this fight. I don't know that there's a lot more to say about that. And then the opener, Yulia Stolyarenko submits Jessica Rose Clark. We said going into the fight, this wholly comes down to whether Jess makes the right decisions. First shot she really throws that lands clean, takes Stolyarenko's feet out from underneath her. About 38 seconds later, she gets out in front of her skis. Stolyarenko changes levels, a really nice level change. Gets her on the ground, quickly passes, quickly attacks the arm, and quickly bends it at a gruesome level. These things happen in MMA. Fighter IQ is one of the most important things. And Rose Clark is somebody that just makes horrendously poor decisions. But there's really nothing more to say, you know? Indeed. Pause there because I was going to sneeze and then it went away. So thank you for, for picking up after me there. That's the card. That's the day. That's essentially the show. Um, I hope you guys all enjoy kind of these these discussions and these debates and, and conversations because I adore them. I love having them with Harry and anyone else. Um, I don't want to just come on here and say this person beat that person and they should fight this person next because that's kind of boring to me. When there are interesting fights, we will say it um, and we will get into it. It's not the thing that Harry cares the most about. I want him talking about technical things and breakdown things and higher level things as he did today and does every week. So thank you to him. Please go follow him on Twitter at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. He's terrific at what he does. Follow him on Severe. All the work that he does, the Severe Spotlight will be up on Monday. Um, go join the Patreon for those boys. Send him a couple of bucks. It is very much worth your investment each month. They do great work. They put out great things literally every day. You get something from their feed every day. So just go sign up and thank me later. Continue to sign up and subscribe here. I greatly appreciate it. I hope you are getting great things from this feed literally every day, both in podcast and now video form with one thing or one question and, you know, written form, which is most of the week. It's been fun. I feel like it was a good card. I guess, I guess let's wrap with that. Overall, what was, what was your final kind of not grade, but just based on how excited you were going in, how did you feel coming out? Tired. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that facetiously either. Like there are some cards that you come out of and it's seven in the morning and you don't even need to sleep. You just, I just roll straight to training, right? Whereas I got into bed this morning and I sighed as I hit the pillow. That's what it felt like. I think that on paper, as we've said, the card was, was good. Um, very, very, very good on paper. 
it just didn't feel like the card built in the way that we maybe expected it to build. Uh, and that was a disappointment, uh, especially, you know, no, for, for, for myself and, and yourself. But I think that, look, it's, it's one of those, it's just, it's just one of those things, lads, you know, like this, you can't, you can't have everything and equally the, the cards that, that really it's maybe that's the conversation for another time, but it's definitely not for today. But like on paper, that card was great. We said it was great. I think we can all agree that we were pretty confident it was going to be great. And on paper for me, it just didn't really quite match up to that. And yet there are some cards that on paper are trash, but turn out to be brilliant. Right. I wonder what that is. What was, what was your thought on the card? Pretty much the same as you. I'm, I'm probably always a little bit higher because, you know, I, I get absolutely lifted by that Volkanovski performance. Um, happy to see a guy like Bam Bam get a good victory um, and really can put a lot of stock in, in the early fights, which I really quite enjoyed. A lot of good performances, a lot of, a lot of things that we learned, but I had the same thought you did about what is it about this sport that when they look great on paper, sometimes they don't deliver. And when they don't look necessarily great on paper, they're the ones that blow us away that we're all, can we just find that, that middle ground where they, where they all look like B pluses on paper and they all deliver like B pluses in practice. Cause then I think I would, I would hope I would expect that we get more satisfied viewers. We get more engaged viewers. We get more appreciative viewers but that's not what we have here right now. And as you said, that is a, a longer conversation, probably a speaker's corner for another day. For now, we will call it here. Be good to one another. Be good to yourselves. Know that we love you. Know that we care about you. We appreciate you checking us out. Shout out to the guys at One Bone for the sponsorship. We love you. Keep doing what you're doing. Go check them out, onebone.com. And outside of that, we will talk to you next Sunday.